0: You're listening to the English Ministry Podcast of Chinese Christian Church, Thousand Oaks. Join us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Find out more at english.cccto.org. Well, thank you for that introduction and a kind remark. Um, you know, I don't come to EM very often. I realize that uh, every time I step in here, it feels very different from the other congregation. One is that I fell on like my anxiety Kind of went up as I step into the congregate into the sanctuary. Partly because um, uh, EM seemed to be always like at the mercy of the Chinese congregation when they leave, so they don't have a lot of time to set up, and everybody's sweating, busy, you know, with anxiety. But I really thank Pastor Peter that with his Wild West drumming, really calms me down for some reason. And uh, the other difference is that I noticed there are some new song leaders. And uh, really good to see these new faces. And uh, uh, I'm sure you love them all. I think, especially, I think you guys love Ryan the most because you put him behind a bulletproof glass. (laughs) And you're not protecting the other leaders. So uh, can I just ask you to give a little warm applause to encourage these new song leaders? They did a great job. Yeah. So uh, hopefully Ryan will be free from the bulletproof glass in the future. This morning, I'd like to uh, um, consider a topic with you, uh, the topic of uh, a messy family. Um, A few years ago, I was invited to speak at a camp, and they were asking me to speak exactly on the same passage. And all of a sudden, the thought about family and messiness kind of come hand in hand. And I had the realization when uh, I was helping my wife to uh, with Awana versus recital when my kids were still in Awana, and uh, my one of my kids I didn't want to name name so that uh, you don't embarrass him, he or him, he or her, who um, was reciting from Ephesians chapter six one, and he was saying, um, he recited something like this: He said, "Parents, obey your children in the Lord." I said, "Why? Wait, wait a second now." is that kind of different and i looked up it was supposed to be uh, children obey obey your parents and the lord so he didn't stick that one by me um but whenever i think about family the word messina kind of come in mind because if we take a look at the state of uh, family and marriage in the united states um, we're looking at about 45 percent of marital dissolution as uh, we as we speak now and People kind of like glad because, you know, seemingly uh, divorce rates have kind of plateau at 45 percent. But the reality is that something is not uh, apparent on the statistic is that a lot of young people decided not to get married, either to cohabitate or do not get into um, kind of um, what we call committed relationship at all. And one time this uh, Indian colleague of mine, he said, you know, the state of uh, family can be described in three. Three phrases, right, is that when you first start dating, there is the wedding, I mean, there's the engagement ring, and then when you get into marriage, it's a marriage ring, a wedding ring, and then when you live together, finally forming a family, that's a suffer ring. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, If you look at, in the United States, about 73% or close to three-quarters of African-American family do not have a father in the household. And a lot of the black youth grow up uh, without a folly figure. Um, how does that uh, come closer home is that, as you know, Michael Felt, one of the most decorated and celebrated athletes of all time in the entire world, he won 28 medals, and uh, 20 of which 23 were gold medals. And nobody comes close, you know, uh, among us, I mean, it'd be great if Michael Chang was to win one Olympic gold medal in tennis, right? That'd be really good because, you know, we somehow affiliated with Michael Chang. Uh, but you might imagine winning one, one gold medal. It's not an easy thing. It's a, like a lifelong dream. And uh, some of you might be good in cooking. Maybe you want to start advocating for having like a cooking uh, medal contest or something. Then I, I'm sure we have a lot of gold medalists among us. But Michael felt, um, let me just forward a little bit. Do I have a slide with him? No. Uh, so during the 2016 Olympic, uh, as you know, he won 28 medals. Uh, but people really didn't know what happened to him after 2012 when he announced his retirement in the London Olympic. He said, it's, I'm done. Uh, no more swimming. I'm good. You know? And shortly after he announced his retirement, he got into a lot of trouble. People knew that he got into drugs, smoking marijuana, he was caught drinking. In fact, he had two DUIs. The second DUI he had, he was caught driving into a tunnel into the opposite traffic direction. And in Michael Feld's own word, I nearly killed myself. I was going to die. What happened? What happened after the 2012 Olympic? Later on, through an ESPN interview, he said this. He said, You know, after the 2012 Olympic, I look at these medals. I was utterly angry. I'm angry at what? You know, he had won more medals than anyone else on earth. He said, You know, at the age of nine, my dad abandoned me and his parents divorced. He said that I rarely ever seen him after. And through ESPN, he said that his father tried to reach out to him after the 2012 Olympic. And this is his verbatim words that, he didn't speak directly through his, to his dad, he said, through ESPN. He said, Dad, you were gone for such a long time. I'm sorry, you're not going to walk in now and pick up where you left off. More often than not, this kind of depicts our family situation in the United States, and we have trouble committing to relationship. We have issues with family stability. All in all, how does that hit home is that through divorces and family uh, instability, it brings about poverty. The reason is very simple. If a household used to paying for one rent, you know, source of income. Now two people are separated in two separate households and paying too you know, high skyrocketing rent. And then there's confusion in committed relationship, whereas we know that uh, heterosexual relationship doesn't seem to last, so we look for alternate relationship. And the bigger issue is that it brings about social, dis- social stability issue. And we know that in divorced household, children do not do as well academically and emotionally. Now having said that, um, Asian American that's kind of a different uh, we're being called the model minority in this country because first of all Asian enjoy the highest income we have the highest marital stability and as well as having the highest academic achievement anywhere else. if you look at the Chinese congregation or, or even English congregation we have more PhD than probably masters and that's impressive because people look at Asian families as you know bedrock of families but that has beginning to change because Asian family are now catching on divorce rate, relational brokenness, and family brokenness. Uh, not too long ago, I was invited to speak at a conference in Vancouver. So after the seminar, we are speaking about family topics, right? So there were quite a few people who were interested in my topic and waited to, wanted to talk to me afterward. And in my peripheral vision, I saw this lady, kind of like a shy uh, Chinese lady. By the way she dressed, I knew that she was probably mainland China. She patiently waited. You know, I was trying to, like, you know, finish with these uh, speaker with superficial interactions, right? So, and she patiently waited. I knew that she wanted to talk to me, so I made a point to get rid of all the other speakers without offending them, right? Of course. But uh, finally, I get a chance to speak to her. And I said, you know, uh, hey, how are you doing? And uh, how can I help? You know, without much introduction, she broke down in tears and then she said, um, I'm a victim of domestic violence. Uh, I wish you could help me. I said, How long has this been going on? He said, It has been going on the day I married. I said, whoa, he said, how long have you been married? 16 years. I said, do you have any children? I have a 10 year old and an 8 year old. He said, my husband had been beating me physically from the day we got married till this point. So I tried to be helpful. I said, you know, have you considered calling the police? She said, you know, I did. And that's where my trauma began. She said that because she was emotionally disturbed when she called. She was so, I mean, in a lot of pain and a lot of trauma. She called the police, and the police looked at both of them. The husband was able to put up a front and was really composed. And they thought, she's the one that needs psychological and psychiatric confinement. They jailed her and put her in prison, and then she was in psychiatric confinement for a long time. I said, well, have you, you know, seek help, uh, sought help at church or a pastor? And said, first of all, nobody want to believe my story. Secondly, I'm a burden to a lot of people. That was kind of like, you know, the extreme example, a very traumatic example. But if we were to look at the American phenomenon called American Love Syndrome, Nowadays, we have a generation of people who are hesitant about getting into a committed relationship. We think twice about getting married. A lot of people don't want to uh, commit to each other. Cohabitation is kind of a natural outcome. It's almost like a marital relationship is like going to Home Depot. You try out something, and within 30 days, you're not happy, and you get a full refund. And somebody even cynically make this remark. What is the cost of divorce? They try to get to the bottom of it. The reason you have divorce is because you get married. So let's not get married. Well, let's put that cynical remark aside that marriage is the reason for divorce. I wanted to invite you to go back to Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to read a few verses with you. And I want to invite you. Uh, why don't I read two verses and the congregation will follow by reading the other condensed verses. I'm going to be reading from NIV And this is the parable that Jesus has said in Luke chapter 15. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of estate. So he, the father, divided his property between them, meaning there's an older son and a younger son. he gave the younger son his inheritance. And congregation responded, So the, the, now I want to just explain a little bit, given that this is a parable, so this story never really happened. But this story is really, really famous to a point that even in India, they have a similar story as such. They mimic the prodigal son, and they have their own Indian version of prodigal, uh, uh, prodigal son. The story basically meaning that Jesus wanted to depict family relationship and talks about this well-to-do man. He has a lot of wealth and mother's not in the picture. And the younger son one day decided to out his own volition come up to the father and Hey, give me my money, I'm gonna split. So and then he took his inheritance, he went out and go into wild living, squander in prostitutions and wild parties and whatnot. And eventually, a severe famine hit the area he lived, and then he be realized that he was in destitute, so he began to be in need, okay? So let's go on to the next four verses. But while he was still a long ways away, talking about he repented, and he realized that he, he was wrong, and he decided that the best thing for him to do instead of living like a pig, he decided to go back home. So, but... But while he was a long way uh, off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, Uh, Preceding these verses, you can tell that the father had been waiting for this prodigal son to come home for a long time, and he was looking out. So without knowing what the son had done, uh, really done, and without knowing if the son has repented for what he did, He was waiting for him and ready to receive him unconditionally. So when he came home, the son repented in front of the father, said, you know, what I did was wrong. Not only that brings shame to the family and a dishonorable, and worse yet, I really offended heaven, offended my God. So his father, what he did was that he put a ring on his finger and then sandal on his feet because he had nothing to wear. And the other verses also included where he actually put on a gown, and representing a full acceptance in the family. And they have a festival, and they celebrated his return. Okay, let's go on. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Uh, congregation respond. going on but when his son of yours who has squandered your property and prostitute come home you killed a fattened cow for him can you which 31: but we have to celebrate and be glad because th- this brother of yours was dead and is alive again he was lost, lost and he is found um I want to kind of go through a little bit of uh, exegesis with you this morning, Uh, kind of explain something that's not quite obvious in this passage. Uh, In terms of superficial story, we kind of know what's going on. Then when the younger son came home, obviously through the older son's jealousy, and on top of that, not because of jealousy, but he's a devoted and loyal son, and he has been honest I mean, this is a downright honest man. When he see his brother came home, he was filled with anger beyond his jealousy, and he confronted his dad, and he said, you know, I don't want to join your party, because this is for him, it's not for me. And it's utterly unfair. You shouldn't have done this to him. He has squandered his his wealth. Let him be, and have me. I alone is enough for you. That's kind of how he's saying. And his father came back, and then kind of like comforted him, Um, comfort the son, saying that, you know, it's okay, it's okay. He's a lost sheep, let's accept him uh, unconditionally. And, you know, uh, you always have me, because, you know, I'm going to be here. Now, what's not apparent in this story is that uh, when a younger son wants to ask for his inheritance in a family, this is something that doesn't really cohere with uh, the culture at that time. What do I mean by that? Uh, I read a book... uh, by Kenneth uh, Bailey, who's a, a really renowned uh, biblical scholar. Uh, he is also known as a scholar who bring about cultural lenses into the Bible. In other words, he kind of taught us how to read the scripture, not just by the superficial word. He asked us to really look into the scripture to see what is the cultural background in which the scripture derived from. What he said was that, he said, when he read, read this verse, he said, A younger son wants to get his father's inheritance. It's culturally incongruent. It doesn't happen in the culture. See, in the New Testament time, a son is about to wait for his dad to be on a dying bed so that they would wait respectfully and in honor, asks his father's will, what does he want to do with his wealth? And the father usually would first devote a chunk of the property to the oldest son first, and then give it to the younger son, and kind of go in that order. So a younger son coming to the family, asks for this, the wealth, is really inconsistent, and it's kind of in a way inconsistent or unimaginable. So Kenneth Bailey, in order to seek out the truth answer to that, he traveled to Morocco, uh, Syria, uh, Ethiopia, and all these places in search of the answers that, what is Jesus really trying to tell us here? Why is he telling us something culturally inconsistent? So he interviewed a lot of family, and then the family kept telling him that, you know what Jesus says in his pages would never happen, because a younger son would never go to his father and ask for an inheritance. Finally, he went to, I think, Ethiopia and hit a family. A father was asked of the same question, and he became enraged and furious. He said, if my son asks for my inheritance when I'm still alive, what that means is that he wants me dead. So essentially what Jesus was saying is that he tried to depict a father who was very gracious and loving. But at the same time, here we have a son who is brash, self-confident, arrogant, and had no regard for his family and when his father did. How would you imagine if you're the father of a family and someday your, your son come to you or your daughter come to you and ask for your inheritance? That's exactly what Jesus is trying to portray. It's the amount of shame and dishonor this son had brought to the family. Now, the family with this kind of son, um, later on, this father responded with something also unimaginable is that he took his prodigal son, accepted unconditionally into the household. It's also something that uh, you would not experience a Middle Eastern culture. For example, if you look at uh, Islamic believers, right, if, if there was a Muslim in the family who turned to Christ, the first thing that he encounters is that family rejection. Parents will kick them out of the family, said they would disown him or her for turning your belief against your prophet Muhammad and God Allah. So people kind of portray it this way. He said, this father, according to another author by the name of Nathan Duncan, he said, "You know, this father is really a reckless father, because he's not only reckless, he selfishly indulged his son and disregard for his uh, devoted older, older son. He let this prodigal son treat him like an ATM machine. That's why we have these prodigal son and material girls in our culture who have no regard for family well-being. Now, people look at this as that the way they describe the father is that the family messiness is all his fault. He made this happen. But on the contrary, the scholar Kenneth Bailey was saying that what, what Jesus said is just a parable, it's not a real story. But it has several important points for us. First of all, There's no mother involved here. Did you guys notice? Uh, A wealthy man would well to do and have two sons. And where did the mother go? It's kind of an interesting point. Uh, Rembrandt one time painted this famous painting of the prodigal son, right? He has a little ghostly figure in the far upper corner depicting the mother kind of in the background, never showed up. But I think I would tend to agree more with Kenneth Bailey. He argued about the point that The father really portraying both the fatherly figure and the motherly figure at the same time. On one hand, he wanted to represent the discipline, the rules in the family. But at the same time, he also portrayed the mother who had unconditional regard and love for his own children. And the way the father looked at his son was that he was a lost sheep. He was a lost sheep. In order to deal with this messy situation, the right thing to do is to give him unconditional regard and acceptance before repentance i don't know if you follow me or not forgiveness before repentance it's kind of hard to imagine that you would offer re- forgiveness before repentance well you know the way i look at it is uh, whichever whichever way you slice this family it represents it represent a lot of our family in the sense that it's messy Family is a messy place. You know, imagine for newborn parents, right? Newborn parents. I remember when I had my first kid. And I took this kid. The only thing I know was that I didn't know how to strap my inborn, uh, newborn infant into the car seat. I said, well, should I turn forward or should I turn backwards? Studies have shown that you should put it in the middle of the back seat and turn him the other way around. And then you have to strap the car seat a certain way. I said, darn it. Why isn't that there's an instruction manual that come with this kid? There's no instruction manual for parents anywhere when we bring kids home. And in the parents' defense was that in order to raise kid to age 18 in our modern society, it costs about three-quarter of a million dollars, and that's not including his college tuition. And it's both financial heavy responsibility, and on top of that, we have no instruction manual how to raise these new generation kids coming from the millennia. It's really tough. You know, uh, I, I came from a pretty uh, messy family myself. In, in fact, I wouldn't even call messy family, I would call it psychological, pathological, dysfunctional family. My, my, mo- my mom is an avid gambler, And she came from a family where her father was alcoholic and her mother had a casino. And there I have, you know, a pathological maternal side. A mother was usually not home because she was busy doing mahjong on the weekend. There I have a father who is usually not home. And I still remember that I hardly see my dad. The only time I remember my dad was that around midnight, as someone would be coming to the bedside after we all fallen asleep, somebody would be kissing me on the forehead. And I knew that was my father, because he's the only one with mustache in the family. So he was like, uh, his, his spikes were like poking my face, right? So I knew it was my father. That was the only recollection of my family. It was a pathological and messy place. And worse yet. Um, I came to understand family as a messy place because uh, through my counseling experience and doing mental, uh, mental health counseling is that uh, in addition of family being a messy place, every family seemed to have a black horse. I don't know if you guys uh, know what I'm talking about. If you have more than one sibling, uh, you tend to like see like one of the members is kind of like not quite you know, following the norm. And if you have only one child, like the, a lot of the Chinese family in mainland China, that one child could be the black horse and the prodigal son of material girl. I remember that there was a story in uh, a China province where a son, the only son in the family, was given a lot of uh, wealth access in his early life. So in his teen years, he's already driving with fancy cars. One day, he was driving in a countryside, and he was He was speeding in the countryside. And there was a a farming lady who walked along the sidewalk at night, and he didn't see it. He ran down the pedestrian. And the lady was knocked unconscious on the ground. So while in his panic, trying to figure out what to do, so he decided to take out the hidden knife in his glove compartment, he went and stabbed the lady to death so that they were leaving no witness behind. Unfortunately, There was a passenger nearby and another farmer who saw what he did and then recognized his license plate, eventually caught him, and he was arrested. China doesn't have a very lenient law against murder, so he was put on trial and waiting for the death sentence. His dad came out and said, pleading for his life, he said, you know, why don't you execute me? rather than executing my son, he has a future ahead, and I'm already aging, take my life and not his. And a lot of social media said, here we have another prodigal son and a messy family. You know, I, uh, I, I, I resonate with this messy family in many ways because um, as you knew, uh, I shared before where my older brother uh, at his young age, he came from a broken family of his own. He divorced his wife and uh, had a really bitter marriage and lost his child custody. So he came home, and eventually he fell into severe depression, and he committed suicide. Now, that was one black horse in our family, but we have a second black horse in our family, too. We have, we have three boys in our family. I was the youngest youngest son, and I want to just share a little bit of our family darkness. Um, I had a brother at his young age, he always the attention getter. He loves party, he likes to take shortcuts, he always wants want to uh, brag before his friend. I even remember when I was in um, elementary school, uh, he would be bring friends from other classrooms and bully me in my own classroom. There I thought, I said, you know, What kind of brother, you know, would bring friends and bully his own brother, right? So at a young age, I learned to hate him with a passion. I don't know you know, what I mean. I learned to hate him with a passion. I said, I thought brother and family member are there to look out for each other's well-being. There I have a brother who betray me and, you know, trying to do me under. So, uh, you know, you can imagine we didn't have a good relation growing up. So... In his young age, uh, during high school, he started learning how to party. Eventually, he hung out with a lot of friends who introduced him to drugs and alcohol and substance. And there he learned a shortcut by holding parties, a disco party, dancing party. He can charge a mission and make money and quick, make big bucks. Even after he was fired from his job, he was able to make an okay living by doing parties. And for many years, he was in and out these drug rehab centers and uh, getting in it to, and getting hired, getting laid off, and doing all sorts of crazy things. And for many years, my parents had to put up with his life. He, he was a karate Karate black belt, but when he ran out money and wanted to look for help, he would come to our family and ask my parents. That you know, uh, you know, for some reason uh, I hit into this gang of black uh, black people in L.A. downtown in the subway. They cornered me and then I got robbed. I lost all my money. Can I get some money, to, you know, uh, for help? We you know we lived with his lies for a long time. I, I stopped believing him because you know I I seen how he fight. And with the karate chops, you know, he can fight many people. So one night I received a call from Maui. Uh, the police department in Maui called us. And said, we have a, a, an Asian man here who was arrested. And nobody was willing to bail him out. Uh, his name was Jeff and with the le- same last name because we found that his last name is somehow associated with a California family. Do you guys know him? When I took the phone call, you know, I was... You know, I don't know how to describe. It was really shameful having to admit that I have a brother who was arrested for drug possessions and committing crime. Long story short, um, we talk among the family. We decided that, you know, this is what the scriptures say, Luke 15, right? Grace before repentance. We want to give him a chance, so our family decided that we want to exercise grace and forgiveness. So we got a bunch of money, we bought him a plane ticket, and he landed in the LAX. When I saw him in the airport, I couldn't recognize him. Uh, he was like uh, skin to the bones because all the years of drug abuse, and I didn't recognize him. I couldn't believe the guy in that thin, cl- you know, you know clothes with uh, skin to the bone was my brother. And we really had a really, you know, difficult talk with him, and heart-to-heart, I spent him many hours. So finally, he was willing to go into rehab, and then he went back to school and, you know, tried to live a new life. But with the years of abuses and the years of lies and deceit, you know, I always held this doubt in my head. I said, you know, I don't know when I'm going to believe him and when I'm going to trust him. One day he, he called me when I uh, quit my job in Silicon Valley. I started seminary. One day he called me. He said, you know, brother, uh, I just got out drug rehab. I'm sober now, and I'm ready to get a job. The problem is that I lost all my friends, and no one would believe me. Uh, it's really hard to find a job without a car. He said, will you loan me a car for a few weeks, a couple of weeks? There I was left with a quandary. Should I believe him or not? So I brought this, qu- this question to a whole family, and I consulted my kid and my wife. You know, my, my kids are really smart. They, they give them the best answers that dad, they also knew about uncle's history, right? He said, um, don't loan him the car. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to turn around and sell your car and trade for drugs. Don't loan him the car. And they look at me the second time. I got the lesson right, you know, and I, I look at my wife to, for for direction. My wife is one of those smart Asian women. She said, "Honey, you're head of a household. Uh, it's your decision." <laughs> and in other words, you know, if I screwed up, it's your fault. <laughs> the, it's your bad decision. So, you know, at that point, I was really left with a difficult situation. There I was uh, convicted by Luke 15 that forgiveness comes before repentance. But there I'm dealing with this prodigal brother. I didn't know what to do. You know, at that moment, I identified with the older brother because I have always been devoted and loyal to my family. When my, two, my bro, younger older brother passed away with my second brother doing drugs, I was there for my family, helping them, navigating them through the welfare system, helping them. You know, earn my degree, my, my way through every penny from jobs, paying for my tuition. So, you know, I was really bitter looking at this brother who bullied me and at a young age. Now coming back to ask me for help and beg for forgiveness and didn't even say I was sorry. Then I went back to the scripture in Luke 15. I pray about it. So... I made a decision against my family's recommendation. I told my brothers that, you know, uh, you can have my car, and how long are you going to need it for? You know, I tell you what, I was, you know, I felt like I was walking an eggshell at that time. I said, God, he's going to turn around and sell the car. God, please let him sell to uh, the highest bidder, please. You know, <laughs> at least get some more money. So. Uh, when I told him that I was going to loan him the car, I, was a little bit, I had a little wisdom. I said, you know, how long are you going to need the car for? He said, uh, two weeks top. OK. In the back of my mind, I said, he's going to need it for four weeks. So I loaned him the car, gave him the key, blessed him with a car wash and a GPS, and there he goes. Two weeks passed by, and then four weeks, and then six weeks. Not a word. There I thought. How stupid was I? You know, knowing his history, how could I let myself fall into that trap? You know, I was, like, blaming myself for not listening to my kids and my wife, my smart Asian wife. And about three months later, you know, I was still sitting in my anxiety, already giving up hope, and then he called me again. He said, brother, I found a job. I'm ready to give you back your car. You know, at that moment, I again, I was feeling ashamed because I was not convicted by the scripture that forgiveness precedes a repentance. I said, in my little faith, I did give him the benefit of doubt. So one thing I learned is that despite our family messiness and our own dysfunctional family, I come to realize that a lot of us, uh, regardless of your family in Christ or family out of Christ, there are a lot of hurts and wounds that we endure. And if you look at the homeless guests that we host, almost without exception, everyone comes from some sort of dysfunctional family. In that hurts and wound, God behaved like he was both the righteous father and at the same time as a compassionate mother who would offer unconditional acceptance despite who we are or who we were. A father to grieve, to forgive, and be compassionate. So with my deep resonance with that uh, verse, I came to realize that you know finally I did the right thing with my bold conviction in the passage. I gave him the car and that was the right thing to do. And guess what? From that point on, he lived a sober life and then he got a job and was on his own and for the next seven years. And I was really grateful for that. And let me f- finish with his second part of the prodigal son later, okay? So in that experience, I kept reflecting over my own family where my father had always been absent and my mother was loving, but I felt like he loved the mahjong more than us. For years of... Um, Uh, deep wounds and uh, distrust. And I came to a point where I need to learn from the Father where I need to forgive my own parents as well. One day I was in a a counseling room. I was talking to the counselor. I broke down in tears. I said that, you know, today's the day that I'm going to forgive my mom for her years of love for gambling. And I was going to forgive my dad for his years of uh, being an absentee father. And that moment, I resolve my anger and my rage against them. So what I'm trying to say is that we can choose to carry that generation wound you know, to the generation before us and the generation after us. And it could be a non-ending vicious cycle. Now, the breakthrough is that we need to be convicted by Luke chapter 15 in spite of our dysfunctionality. God has a plan for us. He has a graceful exit for us in which grace will uh, precede repentance. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 said, but God showed his love for us in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. It is timeless and it is unavoidable and an impeccable plan that God has for us that grace precedes repentance. But now, let me continue a second part of my brother's story. So uh, not too long ago, somebody informed me that my brother, the same brother who, was, uh, you know, who borrowed my car, he was on the TV news. I said, what's going on? And they showed me a scene in which the police, the highway patrol, were chasing him exceeding 100 miles per hour on uh, freeway 110. And not knowing that, before that, he was at a country club. After, the, the, uh, after closing a country club business hour, he and another criminal gang up together and robbed a country club. And they fled. And then it was uh, alerted to the security, and highway patrol were tracing him on the freeway. And he was arrested. And that was the second shaming that he brought to our family. And there I was confronted with a second dilemma uh, he's going to be released in another month from the uh, San Quentin uh, State, House, uh, State Prison. What do I do with him? Uh, so that brings about another uh, theological dilemma is that the way I frame it is that, yes, God will offer us grace and forgiveness, and grace absolutely precedes repentance. But what if somebody continued to exploit the loophole of grace? So I came out with a clean conscience that I have given him a second chance. But when the third time come around, comes around, I wasn't going to offer him the same degree of grace I did before. I basically had some rehab center in mind as well as a job placement training uh, in mind for criminals, ex con ex-criminals. So I'm going to ask him to go there, and I wasn't going to welcome him back to my family's home like this. Here I have a few questions for you. I don't know if you ever resonate with the uh, pathological experience in the family as uh, described in Luke 15. Um, In what we call the model American family, model Asian family, are we immune? Are we immune for this kind of impact of family brokenness? As Christians, if you endure, your own family brokenness or you witness other families' brokenness, what can you do? What will you do? What are you willing to do? So, you know, at this point, I want to invite a special guest. Um, I, I want to invite my son to come up. Um, the reason is that um, I want to give you a kind of uh, a reality show and what happened in our family. And I want to profess to him and among you is that we have our share of family brokenness and our family conflict. So uh, I I want to invite my son, Ethan, here. And uh, thank you for his courage of willing to come up here to uh, kind of like uh, give you a little glimpse of what our family is like. So uh, well, thank you, uh, Ethan. Uh, Can you give him a hand just as an encouragement? So, uh, you know, Ethan, I want to just kind of uh, talk about a little bit of our own family. Um, you know we have our shares of conflicts,
1: right?
0: Right. Okay. So I kind of want to ask you, um, what is one of the most memorable conflicts in our family? I'm going to hand you the, the lapel mic. Okay.
1: So um, this didn't happen in recent time, but I remember quite some time ago. Um, my parents got in this really heated argument, right? And um, my, you know, my sister and I, we started taking sides, and uh, it was pretty bad. And it escalated to the point where, you know, one of my parents decided, you know, this is enough. I've taken enough. I'm going to leave the house. And so, um, you know, it was just three of us in the house, and one of our parents was out of the house. And it was the first time that I've experienced, you know, something. Um, you know, I've experienced this feeling where, like, I don't know uh, what's going to happen to the integrity of our family, right? Um, and so, yeah, that was a very scary experience for me.
0: So uh, I want to uh, confess to you that, you know, we have our shares of deep conflicts, too, right? And, uh, and we're an imperfect family. In fact, uh, I kept telling Ethan that, um, you know, I'm an imperfect parent and I have a lot of shortcomings. But that's what makes up a family, and that's why we needed to be convicted by the scriptures such as Luke 15. So Ethan, I want to just follow on with another question. Um, So what do you remember as how our family resolve conflicts?
1: Um,
0: Is that one of the questions?
1: So this this particular conflict? Uh,
0: Not this, but uh, yeah, any conflict. Okay, well,
1: I don't want to leave you guys hanging, so I'll just finish uh, uh, what happened. There's, we didn't just like have an argument, and then my parents like didn't get a divorce or anything, because we're obviously still together. Um, so what happened was, um, if I were to give you a simple answer, you know, I I tell people, you know, we just uh, we said sorry, we got back together, and then we became a happy family again. But um, if you think about it, you know, especially in American society, this is a really improbable. Um, ending because, you know, everyone has their individual pride, and it's, uh, it's very difficult for people, especially when an argument escalates to that point, for people to come back together and to, uh, to have humility and say I'm sorry, and for uh, things to go back to the way that they were. So, um, in truth, you know, the Holy Spirit interceded, and for each one of us, I believe that he came and brought us humility and um, and forgiveness, and so um, you know it's not by our own strength, but it's by the Holy Spirit that um, he was able to influence each one of our hearts and uh and bring us forgiveness and uh, I believe that that's how we uh, that's how we came back together from that incident uh, for more general uh arguments you know um, usually when our arguments get more heated, you know my dad will call, like, a timeout, you know. We need to stop this argument here. If we continue to say more things, you know, what's just going to happen is uh, everyone's going to get more mad and nothing will get solved, you know. So um, I believe that when we raise our voices, you know, the Holy Spirit's voice is uh, quiet, and then when you raise your voices like that, you can't hear anything that God has to say to you. And so in taking this kind of a break, this, um, for us to cool down, you know it's really a time for us to come before god and for us to um, for us to ask for repentance for you know for bringing this kind of conflict to the household and you know i believe that this is how we solve our uh, our more general conflicts these days all
0: right so lastly i want to ask uh, you the last question is what is one of the most uh, memorable thing or thing that you appreciate the most about a family
1: um so uh, to share a little bit about uh, our family, every Sunday uh, we, we go out to eat together as a family. And uh, when we come back, we have a sort of family prayer meeting. And I find this to be really encouraging because I, I find it to be a blessing that God could give us the time to come together as, um, you know, as a whole family. And for us to come before God and to lift up our, our, you know, our stress from work, from school, uh, and to also lift up our praises to him. And I feel like this really brings us together as a family and brings us closer to God. And uh, it's often said that, you know, faith begins with a family. And I'm really thankful that, you know, even though right now, uh, you may or may not know, but uh, mom is actually in Hong Kong taking care and taking care of my mom, or my grandmom. Uh, she's, she was hospitalized suddenly, and uh, it was a shock to all of us. But even though she's you know, away on a different continent, like, uh, through the power of FaceTime, like, we are able to you know, still have our family prayer meeting. And I'm really thankful that we, we have this every week. I'm going to miss it when I go off to college.
0: Thank you, Ethan. I appreciate it. I often ended with this, may the force and the Lord be with you. <laughs> Go in peace. So what I learned from this passage is that um, most of our families are messy in nature, but d- despite the brokenness and the dysfunctionality we face, and Christ has offered a ex- graceful exit for us, is what we call forgiveness. And that forgiveness, that brings me, gives me the strength and humility at times to apologize to my kids, to my wife, and to other people alike. So in order to be a, in order to be a uh, witness for Christ, it begins with our own family. And our family, it's a truthful mirror uh, deflecting our own imperfections. But it's in that, this imperfection that we learn to lean on Christ. Now exercise on grace for forgiveness go beyond generations it go beyond between my parents and I. It goes beyond me and my kids and it 's going to carry through to the generations who come and uh, at the same time, I realize that grace and mercy does not equal exploitation. There are folks out there who are exploiting that uh, grace and uh, it's not to be exploited and Lastly, um, I believe that uh, as common as divorces are, and divorces really should be the last resort. And a lot of people divorce and thinking that through the experience they gain uh, from an ex-divorcee, they can gain experience and form another new family, not fall into the past mistake. Stat- statistics have shown us that uh, the second marriage actually had a higher divorce rate. So your chances is better is to stick with your first marriage. And um, lastly, is that a committed relationship through Christ is the kind of best relationship on earth. And it brings not only the highest degree of blessing, family togetherness, wealth, and uh, togetherness. So... Thank you for having me here today and uh, allowing me to share a a truthful dark side of our family, but at the same time as a truthful witness to the amazing resurrection of Christ in our own family. Thank you, and let's pray. Father, we want to come before you. Um, I want to especially pray for, firstly, uh, each of our own families. Uh, I want to pray particularly for those families who have uh, endured brokenness. Um, At times, it may not seem like uh, uh, we can unwind or repair what happened in the past. But we know through you, through your power of resurrection, you will help us to repair relationship and move forward. And we pray that you raise up a new generation of uh, Christians who will be willing to commit in relationship as a reflection of our commitment to you, Lord.